We are talking about uh, gifts this morning. So I brought some gifts. Because everybody likes gifts, right? All right. Uh, Crazy Love, Francis Chan, great book um, by a good friend of mine. Just kidding, I wish. Um, And it's all about crazy love for God and crazy radical love for others. Who will read the book? In the back. That's the softball pitch. Bam. Next book, Generous Justice by Timothy Keller, uh, a book about the justice of God and how we as a church ought to be involved in God's work and what God is doing in the world uh, in justice. So who will read Genesis, Generous Justice? I think Paul's hand went up first. And last but not least, what is the mission of the church? Good question to ask, right? What is the mission of the church? Um, we already see two hands up. Will you guys read this book? This is a heavy book. I got a different book for you guys, all right? I got, I'll get a book for each one of you. Um, this is a little bit heavier than the other two, but excellent. Gets into what is the mission of the church, which is actually a really interesting question to ask because you look at 10 different churches and you might think, oh my gosh, God has 10 different ideas uh, as to what he wants the church to be doing. What is the biblical mission? What should the church be about? That's what the book tries to answer, and it does. Really good. Who wants it? Who will read it? All right, here we go. Now, I got to have a conversation with each one of you after you read it, all right? 10-page paper, single-spaced, uh, eight-point font. Rich gifts, giving blessings. It's what it's all about. We're starting a series today called Rich. And um, since every single one of you here would say, would describe yourself as being a rich person, right? That was supposed to be a joke. I mean, typically, I mean, even rich people don't say that they're rich, right? Um, I mean, we typically don't feel rich because uh, we define rich as material things, right? Often we define rich as having a lot of money. And as we all know, I mean, this isn't like a new concept for us here at the garden because we talk about this all the time, but the more material things you get, the more you realize you need. And it's just this sort of endless spiral, more, 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 can't ever get enough material things, money, etc. All right? But now, that's not the only way we define rich. We also might listen to a piece of music and be like, man, that was like a rich melody or that, that, that music had some rich quality to it, right? Uh, we might eat a piece of cake and be like, whoa, too rich for me. You know, that's... So we can define rich then as sort of this ascribing to this thing some worth, uh, something with value, something with excellent quality. But we typically don't call ourselves rich or see ourselves or view ourselves as rich because, I mean, frankly, materially, for the most part, we pull out our pockets and we, like, have a couple dollars. You know, we're, we just don't have a lot of material goods. But then even spiritually, I mean, like, okay, I know that I'm supposed to walk around and say that I'm blessed. I know I'm supposed to tell people that I'm rich spiritually. But honestly, do I really feel it? Do I really feel so spiritually blessed and rich and valuable? And I think a lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we can say that the weaknesses that are in our lives, the things that we struggle with over and over, our flesh, our humanity, outweighs that feeling of being blessed. And we could say, when it comes down to it, when I'm honest with myself, materially not really rich, and spiritually I certainly don't feel very rich. If that's you this morning, this series over the next six weeks is for you. It's what Ephesians is for you this morning. And over the next six weeks, it defines what it means to be rich. And I don't mean, I'm, I'm not just going like to give you some kind of like self-help, change your mind, change your perspective, just think more positive thoughts sort of stuff today, all right? It's not that either. It's like serious inheritance, riches that are yours for those of you who are in Christ, all right? That's what we're getting into today. A little quick word on Ephesians, because um, that's where we're going to be. 
Ephesians, Ephesians was written to, uh, guess who? First one they can get it, you, you get a book, all right? The Church of Ephesus, all right. The, it was written to the Ephesians, all right. No, that's good to know, all right. It was written to the, there was a, a, an area called Ephesus. The people that lived there were known as Ephesians. The Christians that came together as a church there were known as the Ephesian church, and it was written to the Ephesian church, all right. Um, it's known by some as the crown of St. Paul's writing, Others describe Ephesians as doctrine set to music. Uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon says that Ephesians is the sum of the Christian faith. Meaning like, what, we, what you're going to see as we go through Ephesians, I mean, this is going to be really deep. You've got to track with me as we go through it, all right? Some parts might seem boring. I ask you to try to just keep, stay focused, you know, drink a little extra coffee if you need the help. What we're going to see, though, is chapter 1 today is the doctrine of the gospel. It lays out the doctrine, the meaning, the belief behind what the gospel is. Chapter 2 is the experience of the gospel. It's how we as believers, as people of God, then experience the good news. How we come into the gospel. What it's like to be a gospeled person. And then from there, it goes on to explain uh, the outworkings of this new life. It talks about the new set of rules, essentially, that we now live by in this new life. We have a whole new code that we now, we don't live according to the rules of our fallen nature, but we have a whole new life. It comes with new understandings of relationships and how we operate together, and how we work together, what love means. And then threaded through this entire thing, and this is something that you can miss, but I want to try to point it out throughout the series just a little bit here and there, threaded through the entire book of Ephesians is the central role that the church plays in God's redemptive purposes for mankind. All right? And when I say the church, I am not just referring to the universal church. I'm not just referring to the mystical community of Christians all over the world. I am referring to that, but I'm not just referring to that as Paul was writing to the Ephesians, and as he would say, the church, do you know what they would read there? The church in Ephesus. You guys are part of the redemptive role of God in this world. And so when we go through this and we read it, we need to also be hearing the church in Baltimore, our local church right here in the Crispus Attucks Rec Center. Like, I know we experience this as just simply coming into a building singing some songs, praying, listening to some really boring dude talk, and then going about your, right? That's how we experience, that's not actually what it is. We are part of the redemptive role of God in this world. And we're going to see that as we go through, not, not, not all of that today, but over the next couple of weeks, as we go through this letter, epistle of Ephesians from Paul. So if you turn with me there, <clears throat> Um, it is toward the end of the Bible. It's in the last quarter of the Bible. Right behind Galatians. If you can find Galatians, just keep moving over. Um, if you need a Bible, David's in the back. Just raise your, slip your hand up. David will get you a Bible. Um, there should be a table of contents in the front of the Bible. You can find the page number for Ephesians. Um, and you should have a table of contents in your own Bible as well. Do you guys know the table of contents is one of the most, it's it, outside of the inspired word. It is like one of the most important pages in the scriptures. You can learn a lot just looking at the table of contents about the redemptive plan for humanity. Anyway, that's a little side note. 336. 836. Is that right? Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter and I just ask that you follow along. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and, the, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. God, I don't want my ideas to come across this morning. I don't want my uh, truth to come across this morning. God, as we look into this text and as we recognize that this text is your holy word and that the Spirit can speak through it into our lives, I pray that your ideas and that your truth comes across this morning. Lord, we recognize that we are looking into something that is that is deep, that is profound, that theologians have written entire books on. God, I pray that we don't get caught up in the systems. I pray that we don't get caught up in the theologies. But Lord, I ask that the systems, the theology, the way that we understand what's being said here draws the truth to, to, to the forefront of our minds and that the same truth that has impacted the church for 2,000 plus years, I pray that that truth will impact us today. God, for those of us here in this room who are struggling this morning, who are tired of our sin, tired of the weaknesses, tired of the problems in life, the hurdles, the mountains that we have to cross. God, I ask that you bring encouragement to us. Remind us of your gifts. Remind us of your blessings for us. 
take our eyes off of this flesh, take our eyes off of this world, and God, put our minds and our eyes straight on you this morning. And Lord, if there is anyone in this room who doesn't know you, I ask that you convict them, that they repent of their sins, and that they fall in love with Christ this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look again at verse 1. Paul. So it's written by Paul, all right? Ancient letters. Unlike today, we put, we sign our name at the end of the letter. Ancient letters, they sign their name at the beginning of the letter, all right? It's that simple. So Paul, from Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Which, by the way, little side note here. Paul is one of the greatest evangelists, one of the greatest movers and shakers for our faith. His, his thinking about what he does is no, is no more than, for whatever reason, God is willing me to do this. I'm just a servant. And if God wills me to die right now before this letter's over, then so be it. But here I am, Paul, writing as an apostle by the will, not of my will, not because I'm amazing, but by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, some manuscripts actually leave that blank. Some theologians have said, well, does that mean that they, it's not written to Ephesus? A lot of theologians believe that it's possible, this is just speculation, but it's possible that down the line, some writers of some manuscripts, some scribes actually left that blank so that we may insert our own city into here, so, we're not, so that we're not too tied down to simply one cultural zone. So we may then read this to the saints who are in Baltimore and in Christ, to the saints who are in New York, to the saints who are in Philadelphia, to the saints who are in Africa, to the saints who are in Asia, to the saints who are in Upton, and in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now remember, Paul is not writing this, all right? This is doctrine set to music. It's beautiful stuff. The, the crown of St. Paul's writings, some might say. And Paul is not writing this from an ivory tower. He's not writing this sitting in an easy chair at a desk thinking through the doctrine of the gospel. Hmm. How much has God richly blessed us? He's not writing this from a place of comfort. He's not on a cruise ship in the Caribbean looking at the sunset across the Atlantic, writing just how good God is. And how... Listen, Paul is in chains right now, all right? Paul is writing this from jail. I want you to understand this. This is huge. Paul is writing this from prison. Remember, Paul was once a powerful soldier in the Roman army. He was a leader in, in his faith. He had wealth. He had status. He knows what it's like to have material goods. He knows what it's like to have everything. He knows what it's like to have influence. And he know, knows what it's like to have, to have power. And now Paul is writing this, all right, from a place where he has nothing. He's experienced everything that there is to experience in the world. He's experienced the quote-unquote good life. And he's lost his freedom. And he now has nothing according to the world's standards. And he's writing... He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, like from jail and handcuffs. You see, the, the world's understanding of riches, the world's understanding of the good life is all about more. And this isn't something that I'm just going to put on Western America. I think in America we feel that maybe more so than a lot of other cultures. But this is something that's really intrinsic to the human. I mean, even the ancient Egyptians believed that 
you could take your stuff with you when you die. All right? So when a, when a pharaoh would die, they would put the pharaoh in the tomb. What would they put in the tomb with the pharaoh? All of his stuff. So he can take it with him. He might need that along the way. You know, King Tut, he's the uh, richest pharaoh ever. When he died, they put him in the tomb. Guess what they put in with him? All of his stuff. His, his gold couches, gold chairs just stacked on top of each other, chariots, weapons, thrones, shrines, instruments, ornaments, all of this stuff just piled high, gold statues of King Tut, by the way. And in 1922, when they discovered, after 3,000 years, they discovered King Tut's tomb, they opened it up, guess what they found on the inside? All of his stuff. It was still there. <laughs> Meaning, King Tut didn't take it with him. So King Tut went out into, into eternity without any of his physical wealth. And see, everybody, no matter how much we have physically, everybody, when we get, when we, when we get older, when, we, when death becomes more of a reality for us, we begin to realize how limited material wealth actually is. So Paul then is writing here from a place of having nothing according to worldly standards. Yet Ephesians is all about being rich. He has blessed us, he says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, it might be a good question to ask, what does that mean? Somebody ask that. What does that mean? Good question. Um, the awesome thing is this. He actually explains to us what he's, what he's getting at right there, all right? So for whoever asked that question, you just should have kept reading, all right? You didn't even have to ask it. Um, what we're going to see right now is he is going to open up the Godhead for us. For those of you who are newer to the Christian faith, Christians are what we call Trinitarian. Everybody say Trinitarian. What Trinitarian means is that we believe in the Trinity. What the Trinity is is this. We believe in one God. Everybody say one God. And three persons. So there's the Father and there's the Son and there's the Holy Spirit. And they mysteriously, and nobody has ever exactly figured out how this works. All right? And by the way, we don't have to figure out exactly how God works for God to be God. All right? Amen? Amen. All right. So we believe in the Trinity. There's the Father that there is the Son, there's the Holy Spirit, three unique persons in one Godhead. They, they all together make up one God, not three gods, one God. Now Paul, in ex beginning to explain how rich we actually are, writing from prison, how rich we actually are, he's going to tell us exactly what the Father gave us, the gift we receive from the Father, the gift then we receive from the Son, and then the gift we receive from the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you guys, if we... If God moves in the right way this morning in your heart, it could absolutely change your life. When we just, uh, when we just are re reminded and observe the gifts that we actually have, the blessings that we actually have from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So first, the gift from the Father. Everybody say, open it up. As if it's a gift, you know. I don't know if you got that image. All right. So let's, uh, let's open it up. Mm. My wife says I'm cheesy sometimes. Uh, it's part of my style, I guess. All right, verse 4. This is our gift from the Father. Look at this. Blessed be the God of the Father, verse 3, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, skip to verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of whose will? Of his will. The first gift from the Father as we open this up and as we begin to see what Paul's telling us is that the Father chose you. The Father chose you. The doctrine of election is not something that John Calvin invented. It's not something that Luther invented or that St. Augustine invented. 
The doctrine of election is something we find at the core of God and thank him for it. Because if it wasn't for God choosing me, I'm telling you, I wouldn't have chose God. I know how dark my heart is. But God, before the foundation of the world, like before the first flower ever opened up to the sun, he knew me, he knew how many hairs were on my head, he knew my name, and he specifically chose me. I'm choosing him. It's not something that we should debate and divide over. This is something that we should, when we, when we begin to understand it, and when we read it here in Ephesians, it's something that on the contrary, we should sing about. Though we were radically depraved. Though we were sinners, meaning that's what we do and that's what we are. Though we were sinners, we were strangers. And in our free will, and by the way, I believe in free will, and my free will, every time it's free, I will choose sin. I will choose the devil. I will choose the flesh. I will choose the world. I will choose the pride in my free will. Though we were strangers, though we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, God chose me before the foundation of the world. Is, it, is that not something that we should sing about? Is that not something that should just wake us up inside and cause us to want to shout and dance? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This phrase, he predestined us to be adopted as sons should make us shout. And as John always wants everybody to shout when we're singing some of the songs, everybody shout right now. All right, yes. He chose us in him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. Do you know what that, that means? Joint heirs with Christ. Men, women, adopted as sons. This means, I mean, but think about this, ancient world. Who gets all the inheritance of the father? The sons. And every single one of us adopted as sons. That's some rich inheritance right there. And that should make us sing, should make us shout, should make us dance. Because left to our own, we would choose to sin over and over and over and over again. Something else about God's election. Let me say this. God's election confronts the notion which is absolutely killing. It's killing the faith of many Christians and churches. And that is that in some way, in some fashion, our holiness earns God's favor. Now you could be someone that says, well, I believe that I'm saved by grace. Okay, but how do you earn God's favor now? Well, that's through being holy. That's through doing what he wants me to do, obedience. Our holiness earns God's favor. Is a notion that whether we believe it or not, we're, we, we live it out and it destroys. It absolutely destroys our faith. Let me break it down for you a little bit. You might believe something like, if I could just stop lusting, if I could stop looking at porn, if I could stop watching bad movies, then I would have God's favor in my life and he would richly bless me. If I just go to church, if I just say thank you Jesus enough, if I say the right words, if I get my prayer just right, and I say, in Jesus' name, amen. And I say it the right way, the way that God wants me to say it, then God in some way is going to bless me because I'm going to earn his favor because of my performance. I see this all the time. It's amazing how holy people get when they have a big problem come up in life. All right? You're going through life, living life, doing whatever, you know, according to the flesh. You're forgetting God. 
the majority of the time, and then all of a sudden you have a big problem in life, and you get holy. All right, you got a big test coming up. I've got to, I've got to pass this test. So I'm going to start doing my quiet time, right? I'm going to start praying. I'm going to start thinking of God more. I'm going to start thinking good thoughts about God. God, please, you know, get me through this test. I'm not going to do that right now because I need your favor to be upon me. I need to get through this. So I'm not going to do anything to screw it up because I don't want God to smack me down on test day. Here's the problem with that. You take the test. Let's say you pass. Let's say you get 100. And then you go on vacation and you live like a hedonist. You take a break and you forget. You take a break from God as well. You forget. You go back to the life that you once lived. I see this every week with, with young guys who have been locked up and when they were in jail, you know what they said? When they were in jail, they were praying they were reading their Bible every day. God, if you just if you get me out of here, my life is yours. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. And then they, they get out of jail. They get released. And you know what they honestly admit to me today? They're just not feeling God. I'm just not feeling God right now. Kind of got other things going on. You know what this is, guys? This is a religion of moralism. Everybody say moralism. moralism. It's the belief that we can perform in such a way to earn God's favor in our life. Now, I want to back this up with Scripture, all right? I don't want you just to think that I'm throwing my own ideas out there. Look at verse 4 again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, what does it say next? that we should be, what? Holy and blameless before him. Listen to this. God's choice, the Father's gift to you, his choice preceded, meaning came before your holiness. Do you get that? The, the Father's choice preceded your holiness. He didn't choose you because he just kind of looked through the tunnels of time and saw that you were gonna be a holy person but his choice preceded your holiness. He chose you in spite of the fact that you were not holy. But his choice is that you become holy. And you know what, guys? I see this as well every week. I see broken, broken individuals, sinful individuals who are being made holy. There are people in this room right now, and if we were gonna be honest, a couple years ago, I didn't think you were going to be holy, <laughs> right? And I've seen God do a work in your life. Seen God do a work in my life. I mean, I see this weekly. Men who are learning to selflessly love their wives and give themselves for her. Young dudes who are walking away from addictions and destructive patterns in life not because they're trying to earn God's favor, but because they have God's favor. Men and women who have dealt with pride and they're being brought down and humbled. I saw this over vacation. I was on vacation a couple weeks ago. Had a conversation with, um, with a, a, one of my old best friends and his brother who I knew in college. Man, he was one of these guys that you would say, I don't know if God can save him. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't actually ever say that because that would be wrong, but we think it. Like, we look at somebody like, I can't, I just can't even imagine what it would be like for that person to be holy. I can't even, I can't even imagine it. You know, I mean, this is the way we think. This is a dude, last time I saw him, uh, he was wasted. He grabbed my butt. Yeah. He was, he was actually heading to a strip club. I mean, this is a guy I've never, I, I never saw any hope in him. I mean, depraved, the definition of depraved. Uh, a year ago, God saved him. Just 
dramatically out of nowhere, performed a miracle and saved him just before his wife cheated on him. Listen to this, guys. A year later now, you know that he's walking with Christ. He's learning to, to go after and rescue his wife. He's chasing after her in holiness. I mean, God makes people holy. This is the gift from the Father. He chose you before that first flower ever opened up. He chose you that you might become holy. Amen? Now, the next gift answers this question. How then are we made holy? How does, so the Father chose us to be holy. Now, how then are we made holy? Look at verse 6. Let's skip back to verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Our second gift comes from Jesus Christ. Let's do it again. Everybody say open it up. I kind of like that. According to the purpose of his will. All right, listen. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now the beloved right there, if you want to circle that in your Bible, that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the beloved of God because he is the second person of the Trinity. He is equal with God. He is God. And as a human, every conversation he had, every word he spoke, every thought he had, every action he had was completely acceptable to the Father. You see what's going on here? We are called to live lives that are completely acceptable to the Father, and we've screwed up. We can't do it. We've tried, and we can't. We failed over and over. Jesus, I want you guys to wrap your mind around this. Every thought was acceptable to the Father. Every thought he ever had, every conversation he ever had, every confrontation he ever had, Every action he ever, everything was completely acceptable to the Father. He is the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption, remember that word, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished. Isn't that a good word? I just love it. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The word redemption right there, it's the word lutruo uh, in the Greek. It means to liberate on the receipt of a ransom. Whenever you see the word redemption in the Bible, know that it, the connotation that comes with redemption is a ransom. Do you guys understand what a ransom is? We see this in the movies, right? Somebody's kidnapped and they're held ransom by the kidnappers. And then the ransom might be what? A million dollars? Two million dollars, a billion dollars, and a pizza and a helicopter, right? The, we, are, we have been kidnapped, is the imagery, and a ransom is needed, and that ransom is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is our ransom, it's what is owed. And it has been paid for. So this is Hosea. Do you remember the story of Hosea? Remember Hosea? His wife was a prostitute. She was working the streets, getting pregnant by other men. And Hosea kept bringing her home. Remember this story? And then where do we find, find his wife? Uh, finally, she's on the auction block, which is not a good thing. In the ancient world, two ways to get on the auction block. You're, you've been, you've, you owe a debt that can never be paid, therefore you're sold into slavery, you're being auctioned off, or you're a sex slave. Either way, uh, not very good. So there she is on the auc auction block, and her husband, who has every right to walk away if he so chose, he has every right to leave. He throws down more than any man 
is willing to pay. He throws down the ransom and he buys her back. That is all a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gift that we have from Christ to us. There is a ransom that must be paid. And it is our death, it is our blood, and Jesus came, lived the life that we could never die, and uh, lived the life that we could never live. And when he died, his blood became our ransom. It was the purchase for us to bring us out of slavery. Complete forgiveness of sins. Covered and washed away our trespasses. His blood is shed as a ransom. We are on the auction block. And the world is shouting out numbers. Trying to buy, trying to buy us. Yet God chose you and he threw down more than anyone is willing to pay. Do you, see why, do you see why Paul, as he's writing this, do you see why Paul doesn't care about his chains? Do you see why he forgets that he's in chains right now, writing about all this freedom and liberation and blessings and gifts, riches? It's because Paul knows what it's like to have everything. He knows what it's like to have worldly riches, riches as defined by the world. But Paul also knows what it's like to be dead in his trespasses and in his sins. He once trusted in his flesh. He, he was the kind of guy that would go to church every Sunday, do his quiet time every day, never cuss, never smoke, never drink, whatever that list might be. And he's believing that because he's performing so well that he was earning God's favor. And then he looked at that after his conversion. He looked back at that and he was like, man, all that stuff was just rubbish. It was nothing because it was connected to me and my flesh and my pride. And it was just stuff that I was doing out of my own strength to try to change myself. And I couldn't change myself. And you know how I know? Because I was persecuting the people of God. He was participating in the murder of God's people and he didn't even realize it. He knows what it's like to be dead in his trespasses, in, in the trespasses and in his sins. And so when Paul is preaching this, when he's preaching this gospel and he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. For Paul, the chains just don't matter anymore. The problems of the world that he's currently in just don't matter anymore and they begin to fade. Paul is preaching the gospel, yes, to the Ephesians and he's also preaching the gospel to himself, daily reminding himself of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to understand that when you are haunted by the sins of your past, when you are haunted with the weaknesses that continue in your life, the pride that you continue to struggle with, the, the regret, the answer is not to perform. The answer is to be reminded of the gospel, to preach the gospel to yourself. I was dead and he saved me. His blood covers my past sins, my present sins, and every bit of my future failings. See, the problem is as soon as we start to forget this, as soon as we start to forget um, the gospel, we begin to feel the chains of the world once again. And I don't want you to feel guilty because of this. I mean, this, is, this isn't something that, it's not because you're not spiritual enough. I mean, we all, I do this. When I forget the gospel, when I forget, when, I, when I'm not allowing some, one of you or someone else to be preaching the gospel to me, and I'm not preaching the gospel to myself every day, 
then I start to feel the chains of this world. That mountain that's ahead of us just becomes bigger. But when we remember the gospel, when we understand now the gift of God, he chose us and the gift of the son, his blood covers us and redeems us yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We just don't feel the chains anymore. And then Paul just expounds on this gift of Jesus it goes even deeper than, than the individual who he has saved. I want you to see this. Look at verse nine. Making known to us the purpose or the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Look at this. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In verse 22, if you were to skip forward, you, see that you would see that Christ is currently the head of the church. What it's saying here is Christ will one day be the head of all things. Like everything in this world will submit to his lordship. What this means is the gift of Jesus as it saves you now, as his blood covers you now and forgives you now. What it means is as you taste holiness right now, as you see God's work in your life and you're experiencing some holiness in now, there will come a day when you will be holy. Like complete, all things, completely submitted. Every bit of our will, every, I mean, the temptations around, just gone. Sin around us, gone. Like we will be holy. The glimpses of God that you see now one day you will be face to face with him. I was thinking about this while on vacation and just thinking about the just sins and struggles and doubts and scares and fears that I have in my own life. And then I remind, my, reminded myself of this gift of Jesus, the fact that he saved me now, but he's also saved us in the world to come. Like one day there will be no more struggle. The weaknesses that I have will be forever done away with and I will be Sinless, holy, made new in Christ. That's a good gift, isn't it? Now, another good question to ask would be how are we, how can we be guaranteed of this? Like how do we know that God is not some, in some way going to be defeated by the enemy? How do we know that we will indeed be rescued on that final day and that we will be united on that final day and bowing our knee in joy to the lamb that was slain. How do we know? This comes to our third gift. It's the gift from the, from the Holy Spirit. Everybody say open it up. Thank you. I want you to check this out. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit now it gifts us as a seal of our salvation and as a Guarantee. Now, guarantee is the same idea or word as down payment. It could be translated down payment. My roommate in college bought a car. What do you do when you buy a car? You put down a down payment. What does a down payment say? The down payment says that you are good for your promise, that you're going to come through and you're going to pay off the car, right? What this is telling us in Ephesians is that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment that God will indeed completely unite us with himself. Now, if any of you have had a car loan and if any of you have ever defaulted on a car loan, you don't have to raise your hands, you know that that happens. You know that humans default on our promises all the time. 
All right, so here's, here's what happens. My roommate or whoever puts down the, the down payment, $1,000, let's say, down, $1,000 down. And when my roommate stopped paying his payments, which happened, guess what, hap guess what happened? His car was repossessed. And the idea of the down payment is this. If your car is repossessed, you don't just lose the car, you lose the down payment, right? So how can we know that God is good for his promise? You see, humans, we can, give, we can put $1,000 down and we can, we can part from that. I mean, I, I know none of us wants to part from $1,000. But the reality is when we put that down, we can, we can part from that $1,000. And that could no longer be ours. This is how we know. This is the difference between our down payment and God's down payment for us. God's down payment, his guarantee for us, was not $1,000. His guarantee for us, his down payment, was not worldly riches. It wasn't stuff. It wasn't your debts being all paid off, and it wasn't your, a, a, a new car and material wealth. And see, so often, that's what we want as our down payment, right? I mean, we, we think this way. We think, man, you know what I want from God? I mean, if, if, I will really know that God has my back if he takes care of my bills right now. Like, that's my guarantee. That's what I want for my down payment. We think if God has a cattle on a thousand hills, I want at least one or two of them. Here's the difference. God didn't give us a thousand dollars. He didn't give us material wealth. And his down payment is better than a cow or two. What God gave as a down payment is his very own self. He gave the Holy Spirit as the down payment. And by the way, God can't be parted from the Holy Spirit. So what this means, I want you to get this. It means that he's got you. You're not going anywhere. For those of you who are in Christ, he's not gonna take it back. And you're not going anywhere. And he's going to come through for you. And he's good for his promise. Now we could just stop right there. We could be done and go out with these gifts. And it would be absolutely sufficient. But I just want to turn as we close here. I want you to see now how Paul takes all of this excitement. He takes all of this joy. And I want you to see what he does. He turns now to a prayer of thanksgiving. All of this passion, this freedom that he is currently experiencing, there's nothing else to say than to turn to God in a prayer of thanksgiving. And I think this prayer of thanksgiving is a phenomenal way for us to close. So let's read it together. Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart opened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, which are the, and here's the word again, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you see what happens when individuals who have received these beautiful gifts from the Trinity, do you see what happens when they come together? 
Let me read it again. And he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The point of our blessings, the point of God's gifts to us is not just for our benefit, but it's so that we can come together like this as a church. And what we find is the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's so that we may reflect him. It's so that we may be a people which show his glory. Do you see now why Paul doesn't care about his chains? Let me close with a couple of questions. What earthly chains are you feeling right now? What, what problems? I mean, what mountains just are before you and they seem so big, you're really not sure if you're going to be able to get around this one? I mean, you've seen it. You, you've done it in the past. You've got through some big hurdles, but this is a big hurdle. I mean, this is a problem that you're facing. What sins do you have in your life that just seem so gripping? Issues, weaknesses that you just can't walk away from. Regrets in your life that haunt you every morning you wake up. Conversations, actions that you wish you could have all over again. What earthly chains are you feeling right now? Now, another way to ask this is this. When you are reminded of God's gifts to you, when you are reminded that God chose you from before the foundations of the earth, what problems seem to fade? And not that they go away. I mean, Paul's chains were still there. He still felt them. But they just faded in intensity. What problems just seem to fade? When you re remember that God chose you, whose approval just really isn't that important anymore. When you remember the gift of the son, that his blood was poured out as a ransom for you and that you have complete forgiveness of sins, what failure can you now finally just walk away from? Just walk away. What regrets no longer haunt you? When you are reminded of the gift from the spirit that he has sealed you and that he is a guarantee and that... God will indeed redeem you and the entire world. What fears are no longer troubling you? What temptations are no longer as alluring? My brothers and sisters of the garden, I want you to, to, to be reminded of these things this morning. Not to puff you up with pride, but to, that, that the love of God may just pour into you and that you may experience and know the riches of your glorious inheritance and that the chains of this world, though they are still there, simply seem to fade. And if you're not a Christian this morning, know that God has said, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. These gifts can be yours. Turn from your sin, repent, turn to Christ, and embrace his grace. Embrace his blood. One last thing. Let me tell you why people reject the gospel. 
This is, the go- this is the doctrine of the gospel that Paul has laid out for us. People reject the gospel because it gives glory to God and does not give glory to human achievement. Guys, I want you to walk out of here not giving glory to yourselves or to your human achievement. I want you to walk out of here giving all glory and honor to God, the Father that chose you, the Son that redeemed you, and the Spirit that has filled you and sealed you and has guaranteed you. And let's together then become the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells all in all. Pray with me. God, we thank you for Ephesians. We thank you for this epistle that you have preserved for us and you have spoken powerfully through your servant Paul according to your will and he wrote down the words that you wanted him to write and God is effective and powerful as this letter was in the first century. We recognize that it has that same power and effect today, 2,000 years later. And God, as you have been transforming lives with these words over the last couple thousand years, we just ask that you might transform a life right here this morning in this rec center. And God, as we walk out of here, let there be no glory for ourselves. May we not find glory in our human achievement. But may we become a people a church that truly has Christ as our head. And may we be the fullness of him who dwells all in all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.